Left Right Radio. Thanks for joining me. Brian Bosch is with me. He is uh, Millennial Solution. Brian, thanks for joining me. You just attended the CPAC conference. So before we talk about Millennial Solution, I'd like you to give some observations with regards to what you observed at CPAC. Well, I thought CPAC was very different for me this time around. I've been to CPAC many, many previous years ahead of this one. What I thought was interesting about CPAC this year is that the president's speech was actually very, very good. Yes, it was a victory lap speech. So was Pence's speech the day before. But what was interesting about President Trump's speech is that as a businessman, he knows that you can't rest on your laurels. You can't have a business victory and then get comfortable and relax. I thought there was an interesting part of his speech where he actually told people we cannot get complacent. You cannot get complacent because if you get complacent after your victory, the other side is always more fired up than you. And I compare that to the two previous years of CPAC before Donald Trump was president. Um, when we were on fire, we had more energy than you could possibly contain. The speaker showed it. The, the attendees showed it. And right now I see that on the left. And the pendulum always swings. But the pendulum doesn't have to swing back to the left if we don't get complacent. Well, how do you see, was there any sort of consistent, coherent, um, I don't want to say the word message because it's too, too simplistic. It's broader than that. But, but anything that came out of the CPAC going forward into the next midterm election, going yeah. into the re-election, yeah. um, what are some of the principles that, that you see being brought forth and, um, and resonating with people? Honestly, if I had to pull away with a theme of my own, if I was just watching it as an observer, which we did a lot of interviews while we were there, but if I pull away and just kind of look at it as an observer, Trump's speech was good. Pence speech was, you know, speech was good. Dana Lash had a great speech as well from the NRA. Uh, but honestly, I couldn't, I wouldn't be telling the truth if I didn't walk away from CPAC concerned. I like Match Lap. I like the folks that run CPAC. I think they do generally a great job. They're not doing great in terms of attracting a large swath of millennials. But what I can tell you is that I came away with some concern in terms of our energy and in terms of our focus and in terms of our strategy. I think as conservatives, we get really, really good at opposing things and resisting things and saying, no, we don't want that. No, we don't want that. And then when it comes time to put forth solutions, we have a little bit of a challenge because we're, we're usually just the guys, no, no more. Just mm -hmm. don't take any more of our liberties and our rights away. I would say right now, if I was advising CPAC or the American Conservative Union or even the president and Congress, is that I do not currently see a cohesive winning strategy that you guys are putting together in terms of ground game. I see great message points. I see great message points. We have a great economy. Uh, all the metrics supporting the economy, people's, people's pocketbooks are in a better, a better place. The tax bill, you name it. Those are all great things. But there's got to be a cohesive strategy that injects that into the hearts and minds of the American people in a story-driven approach. It's not just about the numbers. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, what you're saying is, is really... I think a very accurate description of what the left does, which is yeah. it's all based upon hatred of anyone that doesn't goose step to their particular point of view. And there's nothing really positive there that people can resonate with. On the Republican side, I think you're, you're certainly, you, you make a good point in that um, there, there's needs to be more of an embrace of what I would call the, the Trump movement. Trump revolution. Yeah. I think that there's yeah, maybe a little skittishness on that, particularly in the part of some of the more establishment 
Republicans, maybe the Me Too Republicans, and and that if they understood the Trump movement, let alone embrace it, they would be embracing a very positive agenda that I think would resonate particularly with millennials and minorities, because I think that that's a natural constituency for the Trump movement. And in a nutshell, the Trump movement is national sovereignty as it's reflected in individual sovereignty, that you put the nation, our nation first above all nations, like we put ourselves first above all other people. And, uh, you know, strong uh, position abroad, very much the Reagan doctrine of peace through strength. And um, and such policies on a, on a domestic level as they're carrying out, lowering taxes, reducing onerous regulations, putting in and appointing judges who actually don't make up the Constitution as they go. You know, people who uh, understand the our constitutional system and, and just taking measures that improve America's prosperity for all Americans. I just think that yeah. if they understood, you know, the whole idea of national sovereignty, I mean, you know, it's it seems like a simple thing, but it's actually quite radical. If you take a look at the trends over the past maybe mm-hmm. several decades, you take a look at Obama, you take a look at other people who were trying to turn the United States into like a, a province of the world. They didn't understand the idea, the progressive idea of what sovereignty is. So I think that if they could, if, if Republicans on a local level running for, you know, local offices, mayors, uh, you know, local city councils, Congress, if they if they embrace these things and, re- and, and, and promoted them openly without fear, to my way of thinking, the Trump revolution would, would advance and they would advance politically. They would. They would. And if you think about what Trump represents, because I think what happens here is this happened during the election. This happened during the election between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And I told a lot of my friends that were having a hard time swallowing either candidate. I said, hang on a second. I want you to back away from the candidates. I want you to stop making it about them because in 20, 30 years from now, both of them, 60s, 70s, they're not going to be here. They're not going to be on planet Earth. What will have mattered is what they left behind in terms of policy and legacy, right? So you need to ask yourself, under which candidate does your your personal scenario get better, right? What What is a better strategic option for you? If you stop thinking about the candidates, if you stop thinking about the tweets, which is the better pathway? And for millennials especially, because right now for millennials, this is the best economy they've ever seen in their adult life. Isn't this fascinating? They came out 2007, 2008, 2010, a little bit later than that out of college, and they came out right into a recession. This is the best economy that they've had in terms of leveraging those skill sets that they paid so much to get. And it is a huge opportunity for the president. And I think both minorities and millennials find themselves in a great opportunity right now in terms of economic opportunity, in terms of tax opportunity, in terms of how much money they get to keep. And if you look at the stats, 67% of millennials desire at some point in their life to start their own business. Now, Will all of them do that? No, but they desire to. So it's really important for the president and Congress and those local politicians, as you were saying, to tap into that entrepreneurial spirit in a real and meaningful way that is done from an inspirational, visionary perspective. And I'll say one more thing about the Trump movement, Trump agenda, and that's this. What Trump represents, not as a person, but what he represents in terms of policymaking and what he teaming up with Congress represents, if you don't like progressivism, if you don't like liberalism, if you don't like big government, if you don't like government imposing in your everyday life and in your bedroom and in your backyard, et cetera, 
the Trump uh, era represents an opportunity to set back the clock on American progressivism by 20, 30 to 50 years. If you look at the judgeships, if you look at healthcare, tax policy, you name it. This is a this is turning back the clock on progressivism in the most aggressive way we've ever seen. I mean, you saw it. Heritage Foundation. You saw the headline. Heritage Foundation said that Trump has already achieved over 60 percent of his agenda that he set to achieve faster than President Reagan. That's right. Um, Brian Bosch is my guest. Millennial Solution. Uh, Brian, uh, we were talking, you, you represent a, a millennial point of view. You know, you, we're talking about how uh, Republicans and how President Trump can reach millennials uh, in, a, in a broader way. And um, I think that actually Paul Ryan, when he was vice presidential nominee, put it best when he said during his speech that millennials are there lying in bed in their parents' house after graduating college with a lot of debt and looking up at their posters of Che Guevara on the wall. And uh, have, they, they don't have much, you know, in terms of, of, of direction, where, where to go with it all. Yeah. And, and I think that describes, describes it to a certain degree, although I think things are improving now with the Trump economy. People are start getting into startups. They are focusing more on career, which, which is in a sense a natural uh, breeding ground for more conservative people. Yeah, but, but the the left still has one big card in its hand, and this is something that it seems simplistic, but it's very difficult to overcome, and that is the card of hatred and scorn. Yeah, you know, it's, it's social pressure. People want to be one of the beautiful people. We want to be, you know, fashionable. You know, you want to be cool. You want to have, you know a great girlfriend and, or a boyfriend. Yeah. You want to have, you know, you want to go out to the good parties and you want to have, eat brie cheese and drink white wine and do all the things that liberals Sounds like do. the life. <laughs> right? I mean, you want to <laughs> listen to James Taylor and sit on the lawn of, of, of Tanglewood and here in Massachusetts, you know, do all these things that liberals like to do because it's, it looks right. It feels right. It's fashionable. It's easy, really. You get a sense of, of righteousness, like, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm I'm doing good. I'm supporting the good things. You don't have to actually do anything. You just yeah. nod to it. You give like a genuflection to the left and you're suddenly it's like doors open and you're welcomed into this kind of club that uh, atmosphere. It's almost like a cult like atmosphere, actually. But yeah. putting that aside, I mean, I understand those kinds of pressures. You know, it's very easy to go with that. And it's very difficult to oppose it. And when I say difficult, I mean, really, you know, it could hurt your job prospects. It could hurt your career if you come out. I mean, try coming out and saying you support President Trump at the Thanksgiving table of your parents with their friends, you know, and, yep. and reactions. I mean, I, I can speak to this, but I mean, I can imagine yep. millennials who are a little bit more. I mean, I don't give a damn what people think of me, but, you know, they're, they do care because they're coming up in the world and they have. They, you know, there are consequences, both positive and negative, to what they embrace publicly. So, you know, that that power of scorn, that power of shunning, that power of, of social control, and they do control the so the kind of the cultural high ground. Yeah, that's what needs to. We need to mount that mountain in order to break the this hold, and in order to let millennials know that that we have their back that they can think for themselves, that they can become openly conservative, openly supporters of Trump, 
without these hateful and, and terrible consequences. What do you say? I, I'm, w I'm with you. In fact, I can go back to that quote that you said about Paul Ryan. They're in their parents' bedroom standing and or sitting there looking up at posters of Che Guevara. And I think what's interesting about that is if you were millennials and you came out of an economy where there were massive layoffs, there was hiring freezes, there weren't jobs available in your skill sets, there wasn't an economy that was prospering under the Obama administration and the early Obama administration and the end of the Bush administration, why wouldn't you feel that way? Why wouldn't you feel that way? You're in an environment that lacks hope. You're in an environment that lacks vision. You're in an environment that lacks opportunity. And honestly, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm obviously a conservative, but I can see it. I can go to the reasonable conclusion and see why one would run to socialism. Because in the depths of despair, in the bottom of that trough, you're looking for someone else to solve your problems. And it's a natural reaction to what happens when we hit rock bottom, especially in this generation, in a generation that was told you can do anything and be everything. And when we were told that, we grew up, we came out of college and realized that wasn't true, at least not yet. So for me, it is very important for the president, very important for, uh, for congressional candidates and local candidates to focus on the economic opportunity for millennials. And the best way that they can start to develop a relationship, as opposed to Democrats, who all they have is fear mongering and, and, and shunning people and safe spaces and all that stuff. But what, what Republicans need to focus on is their number one problem. Millennials' number one problem is student debt. It's the highest debt that they have. It's the most burdensome. Most of their paycheck goes to it, and that's after taxes. And it affects their ability to buy homes. It affects their ability to get married and have kids and actually start their life, things that we're supposed to do in our 20s. Mm -hmm. And Republicans, if they were to back a private sector approach to speeding up the process by which they uh, pay off their student loans, I think Republicans would open up a huge door of opportunity to show millennials the benefit of entrepreneurial thinking. That's the way to do it. Don't focus on the social issues. You're not going to win there. You got to think about the strategy game here. With millennials, it's focusing on their economic opportunity and tapping into that spirit of entrepreneur. I mean, if you go on social media, how many millennials do you see on social media saying, I'm an entrepreneur, even if they're not? I'm a side hustler, doing the side hustle thing, working on my grind. You start to see all these numbers or the, all these, the, this language of things they aspire to be. And Republicans haven't yet tapped into that. And Democrats won't know how to do it because they don't understand or like the free market. Republicans actually have the advantage here. Well, look, I think that what you're saying goes just so far um, because, you know, you know, you had during the Obama era a terrible economy, you know, yeah. a, a torpid economy. You know, nothing happened for eight years. And yet they voted for Obama in droves. They voted against their own interests, even some of them who are entrepreneurs. They still yeah. voted for Obama because yeah. even understanding the disaster of, of Obamacare and what it meant to businesses and the yeah. doubling of premiums, they didn't care. They still voted for Obama. And that's because of what I'm talking about. It's more, it, it has more to do with cultural forces than economic. Yeah. It has to do with the cultural pressure. The fact is that the left... As I mentioned, they control the cultural high ground. That's something that has to be addressed and overcome. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly, I'm, I'm not here to give a, a solution to it. I'm not saying that we all have, you know, conservative rock stars or, you know, conservative, uh, you know, actors in Hollywood coming out yeah. and being openly so. They're afraid to, by the way, you know that. But, but the yeah. point is that as long as they control those means of uh, conveying culture, 
And as long as they are able to enforce the idea that it is fashionable and proper and morally right to be on the left and you get to be a part of helping people somehow without doing anything and to to disagree with that, there's going to be some real bad consequences. You're going to be called some really ugly names. Yeah, now, yeah. That's, I, I, that's I, the hill that we have to climb. That's, you know, that's San Juan Hill. We have to go up that hill somehow with guns blazing and, and, and fight that. And I'm not sure how to do it, but, you know, it, it almost, you know, we're going to peel off some millennials with with appeal to free market. That's a good common sense thing. That's a good start. Yeah. Doing that. And I'm glad you're doing it. But but the big battle is going to be in the culture. The big battle is and, and we are going to have to get into the social issues. We can't skirt them and we may have to reexamine some of our approaches to those. Right. I just know that you can't lead with them. Uh, having studied uh, at our at our firm, this generation, you can't lead with the social issues, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of bad there's a lot of hurt when it comes to conservatives and social issues related to millennials and how they view that. I'm not saying we don't go after them. We have to go after them eventually in terms of social issues, right. but don't lead with it. Lead with the economic opportunity. I think the beginning to the solution in terms of culturally getting to millennials, number one, yes, economic opportunity, yes, student loans, yes, those things. You know, look, I talk with, I, I work, I'm actually at a company today that we're working with uh, on a break right now. And um, when I talk to individual employees and business owners, what they tell me is that they wanna be significant. They wanna know that their work matters. They wanna know that they're having an impact on their society and their community and the world around them. They desire to have that impact, and that is naturally entrepreneurship at its core. In capitalism, it, capitalism requires that you serve someone with a problem, with a solution to a problem, a satisfaction to a need, a restoration to a brokenness. It's servant-minded. It's it's helping people in their problems as they are. I think the best way to get to millennials culturally is not doing it the way we're doing it but a better way. Right now we call them snowflakes. We use labels like that. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, have you ever tried, you ever, I mean, if you want to develop a relationship with someone, you don't start by punching them in the mouth, right? right. You don't, you don't, you know, you're not going to sit down across the table from someone, punch them in the mouth first and go, all right, let's hang out. Right. But if you think about this, I think about common ground. I think about building bridges. And sometimes when it comes to sitting down across the table with someone you disagree with, um, building a bridge can be really hard because you may only have about 1% overlap. You may only have about 1% overlap to where you guys agree on something. I call it the 1% common ground rule. I am looking for in human relationships with people that I disagree with, just 1% that I can build a bridge on. And I'm going to stay focused there and I may stay focused there for the short to medium to long term until, until I can develop enough of relationship and trust and respect to go somewhere else other than that 1% of common ground. That is much more of a long game, but it's a game that's going to work over the long term in terms of winning people back to the free markets and to um, making it okay to have politically different opinions in society. How can we have those different political opinions on such real hot button issues like, yeah. I don't know, I mean, we could obviously talk about gun control, gay marriage, abortion, um, you know, a bunch of things. I mean, the latest trend on the left is transgenders. Yeah. You know, these are things that um, I think the left is sort of winning on in a yeah. way. I, mean, I look at 
young conservatives who I've talked to recently, and most of them are actually in supportive of gay marriage, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It exists. It's, it's there. They actually view it from a libertarian standpoint. It's, it's like it's not for me, but it's, you know, what, who am I to have the government tell people the nature of their marriage? Right. Um, you know, illegal abortion. Most of them, I do think, want to have abortion be legal. They're not for abortion. They're personally opposed to it, but they understand that the government can't come in and force a woman to help carry a pregnancy, you know, at least yeah. not in the early stages. So, I mean, these are things that I don't know if we have to rethink because, I mean, I, I consider myself to be a social conservative, but at the same time, the millennials are, you know, in a world now that where these things have become the norm. They have, you know, the battles that were fought and lost in a sense by yeah. conservatives. And I think there has to be some kind of a, um, I don't know, a coming to terms with it. What say you? Well, I look at it this way. I don't start at the political hot button, hot button issues when I'm talking with someone that I disagree with, that I know I disagree with. It's not that like I disagree with you. I can just perceive that we probably disagree on something. I don't usually start my conversations there. I really live and breathe in conversations that are centered, centered on an individual's purpose and what they want to achieve in life. Uh, John Maxwell actually has a similar approach. He's actually a former Christian pastor. And the way he develops relationships with uh, people that disagree with him is to teach them principles of success. In other words, add value to their lives before he, you know, starts going into speaking into their lives. You know, in fact, he, he talks about how he doesn't share his faith uh, until he has added value to someone's life first in terms of gaining their trust and their respect. But when it comes to uh, political hot button issues for me, I start, I, I start at the purpose side of things. Mm. No matter who I talk to, liberal, Democrat, Republican, conservative, millennials, non-millennials, Everybody desires to be significant, and they want to know that their life had an impact at the end of the day. And for me, I like to tap into what motivates people and what, what their purpose is and what they want to achieve in the marketplace, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, because I believe that the closer they get to their purpose, we all get to be a better person. You ever, you ever met somebody who is completely and fully satisfied with their life? They're totally happy. They have feelings of significance. They treat people better. You ever notice that? They treat people better. It's obviously a process. I mean, we all yeah, are on that kind of journey of finding that, and nobody achieves that. You know, that's not yeah. uh, that's not the human condition. I mean, that's something that occurs to me as you talk is also like I would say to somebody, for example, if I was talking to um, kind of a, a radical uh, gay rights activist, I would say, look. Um, as, as a Christian or as a Jew, I, I do not, cannot condone homosexuality, but you're, you know, you are a free citizen and I'm not going to try to dictate what you do in your own life. Yeah. I, mean, I would think that that might be a good, a good answer because it kind of throws the ball at, at them. And it says, yeah. are you going to be intolerant toward my religious beliefs? You know, are you going yeah. to tell me as a Christian or as a Jew or even as a Muslim, I suppose, are you going to tell me what I have to believe? Yeah. You know, we don't agree here. My, I, I'm dictated, I, I'm animated by my, my faith. But I won't tell you if you don't tell me. I'm just saying it's perhaps maybe a, it brings a little bit of a, a libertarian take on it. It states your position. And it also says to them, who's going to be intolerant now, you or me? Yeah. You yeah. know, me of intolerance. Are you tolerant of my 
my belief system. So, yeah. you know, growing up in, in church, you know, as I, as I look back on my life and I look at the different decades and how conservatives or conservative Christians um, handled things like gay marriage, uh, I think there was a tremendous lost opportunity to develop uh, relationships with those who were dealing with uh, sexual issues, right? I don't like to put too much emphasis on this because I think our society is over-focused on the salaciousness of sex right. and human relationships and all that. But what I'm saying is I think the church missed out on a huge opportunity to develop good-hearted relationships with people because people, all of us, the human condition, were broken in many, many different ways. I think we've over-focused on sex and the salaciousness of sex because mm -hmm. it's easy to, to, it's an easy target to point at. Um, right. And I think that there's a lot of reconciliation that needs to be done. And I think that part of the reason that I could I could be a, a libertarian in essence of in terms of uh, marriage and how government deals with marriage is because if you look at it from a jurisdictional perspective, you know, we, we used to in law school even and, and I went to, to Liberty Law School, you look at things in terms of jurisdictions. Whose responsibility is it, right? Who has jurisdiction over it as the law term goes? And I'm not sure that I find much support for the fact that the federal government should have jurisdiction or decision-making power over marriage. Uh, in fact, I think you can find a lot of support that that is the responsibility of churches and faith organizations to have oversight over marriage. Now, why then, why then do opposing groups, whether it be LGBT or, uh, or churches, want to run to the federal government to protect their definition of marriage? I think on the church side, I think what what church, what we don't like to do as a church is truly evangelize. We don't like to evangelize. Evangel evangelism is hard because it, it, it means developing relationships with people that we wouldn't normally like necessarily, but we, we're supposed to love them no matter what, no mm -hmm. matter what. Right. And I think we run to the federal government to protect our definition of marriage to make our evangelism easier. And I think that that's what's been done by a lot of those on the hard conservative right that want to run to the Supreme Court to protect a certain definition of marriage. I don't right. think the federal government has any role in it except for taxes and beneficiary status, and that can handle by means of that can be handled by means of contract at the state level. I'm a big fan of the 50 state experiment. I'd rather the federal government be doing a lot less, including marriage, uh, than it is right now, and uh, allow people to vote with their feet. You see, you, you are really expressing a, a classic um, constitutional conservative point of view. And I think that it's one that answers very well some of the uh, social liberal positions and conservative. I think you're right in, to point out that when conservatives get involved in asking the federal government to intervene and they want big government, that's, that's not really consistent with conservatism. It is the exception for conservatism as opposed to the left where it's the rule. You know, the, the, that they want the federal government, they want a, appointed officials, whether they be judges or bureaucrats, to make laws as opposed to elected officials. And yeah. I think that that's an area where we win. That is yeah. something that does resonate even with liberals when they think about it. Do they really want to have the federal government step in and dictate aspects of their private life? And and if we're going, we, we, are, we probably are going to have to have some legislation in that regard but if we do is it the american model is one of subsidiarity that that local governments do this the more lo the more local the government the more powerful it is when it comes yeah. to these matters because the local government is where we live it, it is, is. Where we, are. we send 
you know, we, we, we elect, you know, local people that we see are, they're our neighbors to office, yeah. as opposed to having, yeah. you know, I mean, this is a classic argument where I think conservatives win. And they win, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and you're articulating it quite well. This is something that, you know, this is a great tool that we can use, especially with millennials and minorities, because as I said in the beginning, I think that millennials and minorities are the, the, the natural constituency for conservatives and for President Trump. You know, if, if we can hop over the social barrier, and when I say social, I'm talking like the party barrier, you know, the, the fashionable barrier. Yeah, I mean, I, I would look, I, I love this term as well. Millennials especially are obsessed with farm-to-table food, farm-to-table restaurants. I want to know that the beef that's on my plate came from a farm only a few miles away instead of some big, you know, shipping process and all of that. But what I think is interesting is we don't apply the same farm-to-table approach to our politics as millennials, when in reality, closer is better. And I have I don't have to really make too much of an example except for when, Governor Scott Walker faced recall election. I didn't agree with the recall election, but what I did find interesting is that liberals found tremendous power in filling every single level of the Wisconsin State House, right, and made their voices heard in a very local way, so local and so powerful and so close to home that it made the national news. You know, I do believe that closer is better, and even for liberal-minded millennials, local government is better. Um, and at the end of the day, if you want to live in a local, progressive, liberal paradise, then make one, right? Do it in the states. Just don't impose it on me across the federal go, government. Well, the commune, but of course they don't want to do that. They, mean, they, they yeah. want to impose it on the rest of us. Yeah. But here's a movement that I think is bubbling just below the surface that uh, it's, it's classically conservative. It's, it's made up of conservatives, but it's also made up of a lot of people on the left who maybe are not fully conscious of yep. the fact that it is conservative, and that is localism. Yep. Localism is like, as you say, getting locally grown produce and locally grown food and locally grown businesses and, you know, buying local products and, um, you know, in a sense and advocacy, this is another subject for another day, but bringing back, you know, central banking locally to the states, like what they have in North Dakota, but that's another subject. Yeah. But and the Bitcoin movement is a localist movement. You know, moving toward uh, control of currency. But the point is that not only is it a conservative movement, <clears throat> but it is also a trend, an economic trend that reflects this next century. I mean, this is where we're going. We're moving that way in, in, in the economy because of modern technology, because of things like what we're doing right now in the computer. We don't need to have big television. You and I could go on television and be seen by our followers and it's, I can run this business right out of the, I'm sitting here in my dining room. Uh, you know, you can work any time of the day or night with, with, with internet and with computer and with cell phone technology and with everything else. You're able to start a business and conduct a successful business locally and reach people all over the world. That to me is where we're going as an economy. And in a way, it's a reversion back to the original economy of this republic when we were more agrarian. When we had, you know, Jeffersonian democracy, where you had more states control, you had more state rights, local rights, you had a more local production, local economy, local industry. I think in the 20th century, it went into the big, big corporations and the big manufacturing companies where you'd have 50,000 people punch a time clock. That's over. 
you know, we're moving back into the smaller business, the local business, and it is a conservative movement. And we need to embrace that and and articulate that fact and educate people with regard to why it's conservative, why conservatism is in the de facto sense what this is. And we have to turn it into a, a the du jour sense yeah. that this yeah. is what it is and that this is who you are and this is your interests. Yeah, and millennials are, they don't even know it, but they're a part of it. Yeah. You know, millennials are incredibly entrepreneurial, as I was saying. And uh, many of them do side hustles. Many of them do woodworking at home. Some of, of them have Etsy stores. Yeah. In fact, you're seeing a huge resurgence among millennials in multi-level marketing companies, right? That's so right. they can touch and feel their local uh, family and friends and interact in, a, in an economic sense there. Uh, millennials do not see it yet. Uh, and they w certainly wouldn't call it this, but they're already engaging in uh, a beautiful example of local capitalism. And, and, and maybe the, the term that I'm coining here is farm to table politics. When you can show them that closer is better in every aspect in terms of the ability to control if something's going in a bad direction, you can change it quickly. Um, you can't turn the cruise ship that is the federal government. You know, I'd rather it's easier to turn a rowboat than it is a cruise ship. And sometimes when communities screw up in terms of law and policy, it's a lot easier to turn around if it's not been implemented in every county in the United States. And I think that the big behemoth federal system with the massive federal programs, that's an old dinosaur. I mean, the last gasp for that, I think, was Obamacare. Yep. And that's, that's in its death throes now. I mean, that was the last big grab by the federal government. And, and the whole sort of international scene. This is where Trump is really taking this stuff on. He got rid of that international trade agreement, which would have been a disaster for American labor and American industry. You know, so that means he's pro-labor and labor people need to understand that. Their leadership is still on the left, but the rank and file needs to understand that they don't have to have an, an adversarial relationship with their company. They should have a good relationship with their company. They're all on the same boat. They're all, they're all basically you know, taking the same eggs out of the same basket. You know, if they work together, uh, you know, Germany actually has a very good system in that way with labor, and that's why they lead to the right. That these are conservative movements. We just need to, that, that people who still uh, think they're on the left, they need to wake up and realize that they're actually conservative yeah. and have been conservative, and that they don't have to be afraid of these you know, these social cranks who are going to ostracize them and, and, and call them names. You know, it's kind of like standing up to the schoolyard bully, ultimately, yeah. eventually. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, for me, it's just as, as I think about it, and whether it's an interview or working with companies or talking with millennials, um, you know, it's the, it's the best part of my day uh, to look for a new path to, to the way we communicate. Uh, no matter who we're talking with or who we're disagreeing with or who we're agreeing with, um, finding that 1% of common ground for me matters a lot. Uh, the more I talk about purpose and the more I talk about mission and entrepreneurship, the closer I get to developing good human relationships with people I don't agree with. Uh, and it's, um, it's, it takes a little bit longer, but it doesn't have to. It actually, there are, there are ways to, to create good authentic relationships quickly. And um, so it, it leaves me very excited about where this generation can go and what I believe will go. All right. Brian Bosch is my guest. It's Millennial Solution. Brian, we're reaching toward the end of the, the segment. So um, I want you to talk a little bit about Millennial Solution. What do you guys do over there? 
Yeah, so it's a lot of fun. It's my most, in fact, you, 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 I'm here on a break. I'm here at a, a large Fortune 500 company working with a really great group of leaders here on uh, millennial engagement strategies. Uh, and uh, it's what I get to do. I, I, I really enjoy watching transformation in individuals, watching transformation in companies. And we watch a lot of transformation with companies that we work with on the subject of millennials, attracting great millennial talent, engaging them, keeping them longer. Same thing with nonprofit organizations and political organizations. We work a lot with both of those as well in terms of engaging uh, millennial talent, millennial voters. And um, there's a huge opportunity with this generation. It's not a generation that we should ostracize or label because guess what? They're going to outlive the other generation. So we might as well figure out a way to get along. Brian, I want you to, if you want to, let people know how they can reach you, how they can reach your company, yeah. you know, websites, what they, what you want yeah. people to look at. Yeah, take a look at millennialsolution.com. We have a lot of free resources over there on everything from onboarding millennials, marketing to millennials, managing millennials, you name it. It's all over there, and that's uh, we have a lot of fun creating those. All right, Brian, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Talk to you soon.